Our scripture passage this morning can be found in your pew Bibles on page 51. Where they were going to read Genesis chapter 32, the first 21 verses. Genesis chapter 32, verse 1 through 21. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. And I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. November 28, 1965, fighter pilot Howard Rutledge's plane was shot down right into the hands of the North Vietnam Army. Quickly, he was shuttled to the Heartbreak Hotel, one of the notorious prisons in Hanoi. These are his own words describing his experience. When the door slammed and the key turned in that rusty iron lock, a feeling of utter loneliness swept over me. 
I lay down on that cold cement slab in my six-by-six prison. The smell of human excrement burned my nostrils. A rat, large as a small cat, scampered, scampered across the slab beside me. The walls and floors and ceiling were caked with filth. Bars covered a tiny window high above the door. I was cold and hungry. My body ached from the swollen joints and sprained muscles. It's hard to decide what solitary confinement can do to uneven and defeat a man. You quickly tire of standing up or sitting down, sleeping or being awake. There are no books, no paper or pencils, no magazines or newspapers. The only colors you see are drab gray and dirty brown. Months or years may go by when you don't see the sunrise or the moon, green grass or flowers. You're locked in, alone and silent in your filthy little cell, breathing stale, rotten air and trying to keep your sanity. During those long periods of enforced reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for steak. I wanted to know about the part of me that will never die. I wanted to talk about God and Christ and the church. It took prison to show me how empty life is without God. On August 38, after 28 days of torture, I could remember I had children, but not how many. I said Phyllis's name over and over again so I would not forget. I prayed for strength. It was on that 28th night I made God a promise. If I survived this ordeal the first Sunday back in freedom, I would take Phyllis and my family to their church and confess my faith and join the church. This wasn't a deal with God to get me through that last miserable night. It was a promise made after months of thought. It took prison and hours of painful reflection to realize how much I needed God in the community of believers. After I made God that promise, again I prayed for strength to make it through the night. When the morning dawned through the crack in the bottom of that solid prison door, I thanked God for his mercy. That is a testimony of a man who everything was taken from. And when everything was taken from him, what he realized was that he needed God. And that was all he needed. It's true that it said that um, pressure, the pressure of life, can either send you one direction or another. You read Jesus' parable of the sowers and you find that the uh, thorns and thistles of life can choke out faith and cause it to die. But you also read other, way, other ways in the, in the Scripture, other places in the Scripture, that the pressures of life, in essence, uh, if utilized by God, can create diamonds, can lead a man to God and not away from God. And that's exactly what we see going on in the life of Jacob right now. God is surrounding him on all sides. He's putting pressure on. And so it's not always the case that when things fall apart, we can cry out and say, well, I guess there isn't a God because if there really was a God, things wouldn't be like this. It's also the case that a person of faith will realize that when things fall apart, when pressure is put on you from all sides, God is at work. God is at work. And we see that in the life of Jacob this morning. 
We have three points this morning. The first is two can'ts, verses 8, 1 through 8. And the second is when all else fails, verses 9 to 12. And the third is buying the competition, verse 13 through 21. Uh, so we find after Jacob finally gets away from Laban, after he has that tense moment of basically committing to Laban that this is the boundary marker. You don't bother me and I won't bother you. We will never, our families will never cross paths again because this boundary marker is separating us, right? So where is Jacob at now in this situation? He's in a place where he can't go back, but he's also in a place where he can't go forward, right? He's proverbially what we would call between a rock and a hard place. And what we read about here as Jacob enters back into the promised land, that God gives him a sign of him being with And this is what we call an inclusio, because as Jacob was leaving the promised land, he had that vision, right, of the angels coming up and down on the ladder. Well, as this part of Jacob's story is is ending, his journey to another foreign land and his return to the promised land, we have another moment where he encounters angels. And this is what we see here. We see that when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim, and Mahanaim means two camps. Uh, Now, this is unfortunately an area in which the NIV is not helping us because these two camps um, uh, theme here with this word two camps is something that is a bit of a play on words, a bit of a a verb, a bit of a a word that's sort of bringing a theme into this passage from the biblical author. And so what Jacob says here as he enters into the promised land is he says, there's two camps here. There's my camp, Right? of all the people who are with me, and there's God's camp. And so what Jacob is saying is, he said, God has sent his angels. And this is angels, plural. This is the host of angels, you know. Um, Anytime you listen to Christian radio, uh, my wife and I have a joke, every third song is a Chris Tomlin song. He must have some sort of record deal or whatever, but like literally, if you listen to Shine Down FM or anything like that, you're going to find that Chris Tomlin is played in a rotation of probably like every fourth or fifth song he's played, right? Well, Chris Tomlin does have this one song called The God of Angel Armies, right? And I like that song because a lot of times when we hear this word of the Lord of hosts, we don't realize what that is talking about. But what it's talking about is the God, the Lord of the angel armies. And so what has God done? As, as Jacob has entered into the promised land, God has shown that he is with Jacob by sending an angel army, a legion of angels to him. So much so that Jacob is saying, wow, this is the camp of God. I'm here with my people, and God has arrived with his soldiers, his infantry, right? And so Jacob has got to be feeling pretty confident right now. God is with me, right? Well, then look what happens. In the next verse, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. It's important that we understand these two words because they're meant to to be for us as readers a reminder of Jacob's past and his history with his brother. Seir is the word for hair. It sounds like the word for hair in Hebrew. And if you remember, um, his brother Esau was a hairy man, right? And the word Edom is red. And so these two words are meant to remind us and maybe even remind Jacob 
of his past experience with his brother, the fact that he, he, um, um, he tricked his brother out of his birthright by giving him Edom some red stew, right? Um, and he also tricked his brother out of the double blessing from his father by posing as Esau and, and putting the, the hair on his arms, right? And so Jacob's like, it's been 20 years, um, but... That could be 20 years where Esau's bitterness could have grown and grown. His root of bitterness could have turned into a tree. And so Jacob is worried. He can't go back because he's promised Laban. He will not bother him, right? Um, But he can't go forward until he deals with his past. And so this is what he instructs um, them to say to to his brother. This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and I've remained there till now. I've cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, men servants, maid servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. Um, Jacob is coming to, to, to Esau in humility, right? Um, and it's funny too that we, fee, we see the inversion of the promises that his father Isaac said to him. What does his father Isaac said? Said to Jacob, listen, you will be ruler over your brother. And what did he say to Esau? Esau, you shall serve your brother. The younger shall serve, the, young, the older shall serve the younger. That was the inversion, right? What, it, what was, what was uh, Isaac saying was the, the, the promise that he gave, the blessing that he gave that would surely happen because it was the, it was the promise of God through Isaac's lips. What was it? It was, Esau, you will be the serpent. Jacob will be the master. But watch, this whole time, in this entire encounter, what you'll see. This is what you're to say to my master, Esau. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord, your servant Jacob says, right? And Jacob is hoping, by his expression of humility, um, that he will find whether Esau is still out for his blood. And what do we see in verse 6? When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. Now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. 400 men are with him. Why would Esau need to bring 400 men with him? Unless his intention was to battle. His intention was to conquer. His intention was to intimidate. I need to remind you that when Abraham went after those kings, right, he had 300 men who were trained for war in his camp, right? And this is seeming to me that this is what the author is trying to tell us, is that these 400 men who are coming with Esau, these are men trained for war, for battle. And so, of course, Jacob is frightened. Of course, he is in this situation, right? And listen to the way he, he um, deals with this. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two. This is where I said the NIV does not help us. Groups. If you see there, the textual note, it says little a, right? It says two camps. And the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one camp, the camp that is left may escape. So Jacob arrives into the promised land. And what does he find? He finds that 
Next to his camp is the camp of God. Mahanaim. God's angel armies have come to welcome him back to the land that he's been promised to, right? And the first moment that Jacob hears that he might be in danger, what does he do? In great fear and distress, he weakens himself by dividing his people and his groups into two camps. You see the two camps inclusio here, right? There's the two camps of God, which says, God is with me. I have trust, right? And then here is the lack of, of trust, the lack of faith expressed in Jacob by Jacob here in this moment because he's seeking to protect himself by weakening his camp, by weakening himself, splitting his camp, his camp up. So should we be a Jacob that says, here are the two camps, my camp and God's camps, or here are the two camps. I'm afraid that Esau is going to kill me, and so all these people go over there. Right? This is what we're being shown. This, um, this, this sort of back and forth. And, and this is a reality that we all face in moments of pressure and anxiety, right? So this is what Jacob does. He does what he, he thinks he can do in order to protect what he has. He thinks to himself, if Esau comes and he attacks, at least one of the groups will be the groups that are attacked. And the other camp, they may be able to escape. They may be able to get away. Um, But once he has done this, once he has put in his power all that he can do to protect his assets, to protect his family. Once he has done this in his forgetting the fact that, that God's camp was with him, that the angels were with him. He does something else. And it's often the case, isn't it? It's often the case in our lives that when all else fails, when we have sought to do everything that we can do in our own strength or by our own finances or by our own whatever we can do to muster up our own security, when all else fails, when all else has been taken out from underneath us, that is finally when we go to the Lord in prayer. And that's what Jacob does. That's what he does. In verse 9 through 12, we see Jacob's first prayer. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, didn't Jacob pray when um, he saw his vision of the ladder? Um, no, actually, that was in a, a different um, person. The writing isn't. He was speaking basically, if God does this, 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 I will do this. This is his first direct speaking to God. And Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. That, that theme is still continuing, right? He has so much, he said, that he's got two camps now. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I'll surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now, I read, um, um, I listened to one sermon 
where somebody tried to, t- uh, to, to convince me or to convince his, the people that he was preaching to that this is the moment of Jacob's conversion. That this is the moment when he's finally converted. Now, first of all, besides the fact that I think that's an awfully difficult thing to determine just by the Bible reading. If you want to know about that, you can do the whole debate, was Saul converted or whatever. You know, that's always a hard thing to figure out. Um, But I think what that interpretation, this sort of looking at this moment and saying, here's the moment of Jacob's conversion, uh, lacks is the understanding that um, we often start with a mustard seed faith. A mustard seed faith that grows little by little as it's put into different moments and and different situations and different circumstances. We're being challenged to grow. We're being challenged. We're being challenged to face what we need to face, to go to God, right? And I I don't believe Jacob's, this is Jacob's moment of conversion. I believe this is simply another moment in which that mustard seed faith is being challenged to grow, to dig its roots down deeper. And what we see in this moment is that Jacob expresses an appropriate kind of faith. He is sensing pressure on both sides. He's between a rock and a hard place. He's experiencing pressure all around him. And and maybe he doesn't realize this, but we need to realize this, that this is what God is intending to do. God is seeking to close Jacob in so that God and him can have a conversation. Or, as we'll see next Sunday, maybe a wrestling match. And Jacob, in this moment... Even though in some cases, in some situations, he's seeking to maneuver and he's seeking to, uh, to make this situation and circumstances the best way that it can fall out for him, right? He is still going to God in prayer. And I, I had some, some people that I was reading about this, this prayer say, well, oh, Jacob is still being kind of um, uh, demanding, right? When he says... God, you're the one who told me to go back to my country and relatives. I'll make you prosper. God, you're the one that said, I'll surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted as sort of like a challenge to God. But I want to say, when we're praying to God, should we not call upon the promises that God has made? God has told us that he will do things for us. And he has assured us that these things will happen. So what do you want to pray for? The things that you don't know will happen? Or the things that God says he will give to you? The things that God has promised to you? That's what Jacob is doing. He's saying, God, you have promised this. I am clinging to your promises. I am holding to your promises because it looks like Esau is going to kill me. But you said, I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now, is it the case that we should wait till everything has fallen apart? And it looks like things are just crumbling before we should go to God in prayer. Is that the case, that we should do that? No, of course not. But... Because God loves us as his children. In seasons in which we have lost sight 
of Him as the giver of all good things and gifts. And seasons in which we have begun to put our faith and trust in our own ability and our own strength. Often, God in His grace and in His mercy will put our lives in circumstances and situations where we feel the pressure all around us so that we can begin to get rid of our self-dependence and look to Him. And that's why I'm saying that sometimes God's grace to us is that when things begin to fall apart, we realize that God is at work. God is calling us to himself. And God is leading us to that sweet hour of prayer that often is right after that sweet hour of trial, of tribulation, of hardship. So Jacob, he prays to the Lord. He prays to the Lord. But we see that he's not done. He's not done trying to work himself out of this situation. He's not done forgetting that even though he's made himself in the two camps, that there is a camp of God, that God's camp is still with him, right? And what does he do next? Well, he tries to buy the competition. So he spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. This gift is enormous. This gift is way above and beyond what any... Uh, person would give to a king who was visiting what any village would give to a king who was coming through a village. This gift is um, exuberant, extravagant. This list of 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. And he put these, uh, these herds in the care of his servants. Um, and this is what he tells these servants to do. Go ahead of me. Keep space between the herds. Um, and every time that one of these people, these servants, was to come up to Esau's camp, Esau's group, with these, um, this gift, they were to say these words. Uh, they were to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are gifts sent to my Lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. Um, now, not only is this an attempt to appease or to take away Esau's anger by Jacob's expression of, of generosity... But it's also an attempt uh, militaristically to slow Esau down. It's hard to travel with a bunch of goats and camels. It's hard to travel when not only do you have these uh, herds being given to you, but also when you have um, servants of the person you're coming to that you have to now watch over and look after and make sure that they're not doing anything suspicious. And so Jacob seeks to... uh, to buy the competition, and he, and he basically is hoping that one after another, Esau's anger and frustration would be whittled down by this um, humongous uh, gift. Um, you can't be mad at somebody who just made you a rich man, essentially, is Jacob's thought, is Jacob's uh, concept here. And, and so that's what he does. Jacob's gifts go on ahead of himself, but he spends the night there in the camp. Um, he has separated himself. One camp is on one side of the river. The other camp is on the other side of the river. He has sent all these things ahead of him. And there he is, all basically alone now, on one side of the river. Um, and he's in his own uh, space. He's in his own thoughts. He's in his own fear. He's in his own anxiety. 
things have fallen apart, pressures come to him on all sides. Um, just like our friend that we read about, Howard Rutledge, who had to become a prisoner of war in Vietnam before he realized all that he needed was God. He said, during those long periods of enforced reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. He said, my hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for steak. I wanted to know about the part of me that will never die. I wanted to talk about God and Christ and the church. It took prison to show me how empty life is without God. And, and, and God knew that. God knew that that's what Howard needed in order for Howard to know God. And God knew that in the life of Jacob as well. That when things begin to fall apart, we have to realize that God is at work in our lives. And we need no further explanation, we need no further illustration than the greatest work that God has accomplished in time and history. You see, the entire ministry of Jesus, his disciples thought, at some point, we're going to rise up and there's going to be an insurrection and we're going to kick out all the Jewish leaders who have not done what they're supposed to do. We're going to raise up an army and we're going to kick Rome out of here and we're going to set up a kingdom that is glorious. It's going to be more glorious than Solomon's day and I'm going to be able to sit at the right of Jesus and I'm going to be able to sit at the left of Jesus and we're going to have all the riches and all the wealth and all the money that we can have in the world. You know, that's what they thought because that's what they were taught the Messiah would come to do. Right? And so much to their surprise, Jesus told them, no, the way that we claim victory, the way that I get to sit on my throne, and the way that I place all my enemies under my feet, and the way that one day you will stand with me in a kingdom that will never end, and judging the 12 tribes of Israel, is I got to go to the cross and die. Now you can understand a bit why Peter would say, Lord, what are you talking about? You see, when all things fell apart, when all of the, the disciples scattered as sheep, right? When the shepherd was struck. When all of them were in hiding. When all of them were escaping for their lives, thinking that they were going to be taken and they were going to be strung up on a cross too. When all of them... We're thinking it was over. Everything was done. Because Jesus, they saw, had died on the cross. His, his side had been pierced. His blood and water flowed out. They had taken him down from the cross. They had wrapped him and they had put him in a tomb. When they thought everything was falling apart, God was conquering death and sin. God was redeeming his children. So you see now how God operates, how he works. 
and the encouragement to each and every one of us is that if it seems like things are falling apart in your life, if it seems like things are getting hard, if it seems like circumstances are putting pressure on you from all sides, then know. Then know that God is at work in your life, strengthening your faith, bringing about the kingdom which he's promised in Jesus Christ through your life. causing you to see the importance of spiritual things. Knowing that one day your life will be a life filled with the perfection of spiritual things and a perfect resurrected body. Jacob was about to face God when all things had put pressure on him. And that's exactly what Jacob needed. And often, God in his great providence does the same thing in our lives. He puts pressure all around us so that we will face him. And we will let him deal in us, with us, what he needs to deal with us. This is how he brought redemption through Jesus Christ. And this is how we're called to understand the hardships in our life. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you show your love for us. Not only in the many blessings that we have, but also in the trials and the tribulations that we are called to count all joy. For it is in those trials and tribulations that you strengthen in us and give us perseverance. That you root us more in Jesus Christ, our Savior. That you cause our hunger for spiritual food to outgrow our hunger for real food. That you want us to know more about the part that will never die in us. That you bring us to talk more about you and Christ and your church. That when things begin to fall apart in our lives, Lord, when we feel the pressure on all sides, we are to see that you are at work in us, causing in us what is pleasing to you. We're to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is you that's working in us. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would see that lesson in the life of Jacob, that we would see that lesson in the way that you brought about salvation in Jesus Christ, our Savior, we would see, Lord, the lesson in our, in our very own lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.